Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. If you've got a copy of God's Word, let's open it together to John chapter 15. Many of you may be familiar with Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a famous pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York. Um, He's written a lot of books that have been very helpful on apologetics. He was the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. Um, He's written the book Reason for God, Prodigal God, really been helpful to a lot of us in areas of understanding the gospel. Well, back in March, he was to receive a distinguished award for public witness by Princeton Seminary. Now, Princeton Seminary is the second oldest seminary in the United States. It was founded in 1812. Princeton Seminary is part of what we call the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA. Tim Keller is part of the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America. The Presbyterian Church of America is very similar to our church. Almost the same theology, very conservative. R.C. Sproul's part of the PCA. Well, the PCUSA is more liberal. And the PCUSA threw a fit that Tim Keller was going to receive this award from Princeton Seminary. And so they threw up a stink, and basically his award was rescinded. They said, we're not going to give you the award. Now, here's the reason why. They got so upset with Tim Keller. Tim Keller believes that only males should be ordained to pastoral ministry and that gays and lesbians should not be ordained to to, to ministry. He's very outspoken against um, gay marriage and things like that. And so they rescinded his award and said, because you have these radical beliefs, you're not worthy of receiving our award. Now, here's the interesting thing about Princeton Seminary. As I said, it's the second oldest seminary in America. Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Princeton Seminary was the most powerful, solid, robust, evangelical conservative in America. Produced some of the greatest minds. B.B. Uh, Warfield came out, and, and probably to this day, his writings on the doctrine of Scripture are probably some of the best to ever be produced. But in the 1920s, Princeton started going liberal. And then there was a professor there named J. Gresham Machen who said, they've gone too far, we're going to start our own seminary. So in the late 20s, he started Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. To this day, Princeton, which used to be very, very solid, very, very conservative, is one of the leading liberal seminaries in America that's abandoned Scripture and has embraced a lot of dangerous theology. A few years ago, the PCUSA decided to change the lyrics to In Christ Alone, the song that we sang this morning. They did not like the line, the wrath of God was satisfied. They changed that to the love of God was magnified. They did not want to have anything related to God's wrath against sin and things like that. 
So here's my point. Today, if you as a pastor stand up for male leadership in the church, you preach the exclusivity of Christ and his bloody cross atoning us for our sins and the wrath of God being appeased, and you stand up for the biblical definition of marriage, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to get rescinded an award that you're supposed to win for biblical witness. Now, this is quote-unquote a minor persecution that exists in America. It's nothing like what our brothers and sisters are experiencing in Myanmar and Sudan and Somalia and North Korea and Iran. But here's the reality of our culture today. If you don't understand this, you need to understand this. We live in a world that is not only indifferent, indifferent to Christianity, it is actually at times hostile to Christianity. We live in a hostile culture to the claims of Christ. So the question we have to ask is, how do we as faithful Christians engage this culture? Do we retreat? Do we bunker down and and go into our enclaves and just hope it goes back to the good old days, whatever the good old days are for you? What do you do? How do you and I positively, faithfully engage a culture that's not only indifferent to Christianity, but sometimes hostile. Well, let me give you Jesus' answer. Not my answer, Jesus' answer. Here's his answer to us. You must faithfully testify to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I must testify faithfully to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Over the next four weeks, we are going to be going back through the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at some things that the Holy Spirit does. So we're doing kind of a mini-sermon series in expositorily going through the Gospel of John that tell us what the Holy Spirit does. And today we will see that the Holy Spirit empowers our witness. So let's read together John 15. Verses 26, going into chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, really there should not be a chapter division there. We have it in our English Bibles, but it's really the same flow of thought. So let's pick up in John 15, 26, going through chapter 16, verse 4. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning i have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away they will put you out of the synagogues indeed the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to god and they will do these things because they have not known the father nor me But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I want us to explore five truths this morning from this passage that are really going to help us understand the role of the Holy Spirit in empowering us to witness. Here's truth number one. You must bear faithful witness to christ in the midst of a hostile world you must now why do i say you must and obviously i must as well verse 27 
Jesus says, you will also bear witness. In the original language, it is in a command. You must. I'm commanding you to bear witness. He's talking to his 11 disciples here, but by extension us. It's a command. You must do this. It's also in the present tense. You must Keep on continually as a lifestyle in obedience to me. Testify about me. You must witness. You must be faithful to the Great Commission. You must share the gospel. There is no option for us as Christians to be passive and sharing our faith. Jesus says you must testify about me. You must tell people about me. It's not an option. Now this is scary. It's scary for me. It's uncomfortable. It's unsettling. Because when you begin to testify about Jesus, the culture's not going to like what you have to say. You're going against culture. You may be seen as, man, you're one of those fanatics. You're one of those bigoted Christians that talk all about Jesus. It's scary. And what's going to be the temptation for us and what's going to be the temptation for these disciples? I don't want to open my mouth. I don't want to testify about Jesus. I'm not, I don't want to go against the world. I'm not going to preach the gospel because I don't want to receive that hostility. I don't want to receive that opposition. It's scary. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that we are helpless. Jesus knows that we are clueless. Jesus knows we are scared. Jesus knows that we are inadequate. Jesus knows that in and of ourselves, we are nothing. So what does he promise us? So truth number one is you've got to do it. You have no option as a Christian. You must share your faith. You must testify about Jesus. You must give verbal witness to Jesus. That's truth number one. But here's truth number two. The Holy Spirit will powerfully help you bear faithful witness to Christ. This is the third time that Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit in chapters 14 through 16. Notice what he says in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Well, how does the book of Acts begin? What's one of the most famous passages in the book of Acts? Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus has sent to us the Holy Spirit to help us witness, to give us the power to witness. He's called the Spirit of Truth. Now, why is He called the Spirit of Truth? Well, He's going to communicate truth, but when you go out to witness, when you go out to bear witness about Jesus, when you go out to tell other people the gospel, you are going to encounter people who are steeped in lies. The lies of the world, the lies of the devil. So on your side, you have the spirit of truth living in you that's going to testify to the truth, but you're going to come up in contact with people who are believing lies. 
What does 1 Corinthians 2.14 tell us about lost people? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The natural person. This is talking about a lost person, an unregenerate person. A person without Christ does not understand the things of the Holy Spirit. He's not even able to understand these things. So when you begin to share the gospel with the person who's lost, it's going to be crazy talk to them. It's going to be foolish. It's not going to make sense. There's a blinder over their eyes. They are not going to accept what you have to say. The Bible here says they're not even able to. Unless the Holy Spirit does something in their hearts and minds to bring them to the truth. We're going to look at that in more detail next week. So how does this happen? What's going on? When you're witnessing to a lost person, when you're talking to a lost person, when you're sharing the gospel to a lost person, you need to understand what is going on. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3-6, through he says this, Even if our gospel is veiled, if if it's veiled, if there's a cover, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, those who are perishing, lost people, the God of this world, that's Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lost people are blinded to truth by Satan. They are spiritually blind. They are spiritually dead They have dead, stony hearts that cannot accept the things of the gospel. Paul says when you share the gospel, it's going to be foolishness to them. Okay, that's a huge problem. If lost people are dead, if lost people are blind, that's a huge problem. But verse 5 says you have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. What does Paul say in verse 5? We preach Christ as Lord. So what do we do? We preach Jesus. We share about Jesus. We testify to Jesus. And what does God do? Verse 6. Just like it was on the day of creation when God said, Let there be light, and there was, and light shone in the darkness, God reaches down into the depths of a, of a sinner's heart and mind, and He, as it were, turns the light bulbs on and takes the blinders off and gives them the ability to understand truth, and the Holy Spirit invades their heart, and the Holy Spirit is the one that brings them to the truth. You can't open a blind person's eyes. You can't replace a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. You can't do anything to spiritually bring a person to the point of understanding truth. The only thing you can do is preach Jesus. You testify to Jesus. You bear witness to Jesus. And when you do that, God does the work of opening the eyes. God does the work of opening the heart. God does the work of bringing spiritual life through the Holy Spirit. Jesus has already told us this in the Gospel of John. John 6, 44. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Just a few verses down in John 6.63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So here's the issue. God is most pleased to use your testimony, your verbal witness, your bearing witness to Jesus to open blind eyes, to bring spiritual life, to grant newness of life to people who are lost. And so God has given us the spirit of truth. God has given us not only a body of truth, the historical death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but He's given us a person. He's given us the helper, not just help, the helper, the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. He's the Spirit of truth. He's going to help you communicate truth. He's going to do only what God can do. Matthew 10, 19 through 20. Jesus says in the other Gospels, Very similar to what he says here in John. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. Maybe you have. It's been very rare. There's been those rare occasions where I'm witnessing to somebody, or I'm preaching, or I'm sharing and I'm not going to say it's like an out-of-body experience, but it's one of those times where it's not you speaking. You're speaking, but it's not you speaking. And after you're done, you're like, that was not me speaking. That's the Holy Spirit taking over in a moment of time, giving you words to say. And He promises to do that when you proclaim the gospel. Luke 12, 11 through 12 when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You're in a witnessing encounter and you have no idea what to say? I don't know what to say. Guess what? There are times when you may just need to open your mouth and God will give you the words to say through the Holy Spirit. He will give you the power to testify to truth. So there are two very important things you need to understand. First of all, those who are lost are truly lost. They are dead in their sins. They are blinded by Satan. They are desperately in need of God's sovereign grace to overcome that spiritual deadness. And you and I on our best days can't do that. The greatest evangelist can't do that. Billy Graham couldn't do it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon can't do it. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, Matt Chandler... Greg Laurie, whoever it is you hold up as an evangelic preacher, they cannot open dead hearts, blind eyes. They can't bring spiritual life. So number one, people are really, really lost. But number two, you and I desperately need the Holy Spirit. See, here's the thing. You and I desperately need the Holy Spirit to give us the power to witness, and the lost person desperately needs the Holy Spirit to bring spiritual life. So both of us are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. He, as the truth, the spirit of truth, as the helper, is indispensable to your witnessing and to the salvation of lost people. I don't know if you realize how important the role of the Holy Spirit is in your witnessing and in the salvation of lost people. He's indispensable. 
You can't live without him. The lost person can't live without him. You can't witness without him. They're not going to be saved without him. And that's why you and I need to be praying for boldness. Listen to how Paul prays. Who was the greatest evangelist of all time? If you were to stack Billy Graham and Charles Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards and, 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 and George Whitfield and all these people up on a stage and you had Paul, who's the greatest of them all? Okay, Paul. He wrote half the New Testament, right? Listen to what Paul prays for. In Ephesians six eighteen through 20, Paul says this, praying at all times in the Spirit... With all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and pray for me. Okay, Paul, how do you want us to pray for you? That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What's Paul praying for? Give me boldness. Holy Spirit, I need boldness. Would you pray for me that when I open my mouth, I may be bold? This is Paul praying for boldness. How much more do we need to be praying for boldness? In Colossians 2, uh, 4, 2-4, through 4, listen to what else he prays for. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. Okay, Paul, how do you want us to pray for you? That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Okay, first Paul says, Lord, help me make it bold. Secondly, Lord, help me make it clear. That's what we should be praying for when you share the gospel. Holy Spirit, Would you give me boldness? Holy Spirit, would you give me clarity? I want to be clear and I want to be bold. And Holy Spirit, I mumble over my words and I jumble over my words and sometimes I don't know what to say and this witnessing encounter is happening and a person asks me a question. I am helpless. Anybody been there before? What do you do in those moments? Holy Spirit, give me boldness. Holy Spirit, give me clarity. And you open your mouth. And what does the Bible promise? In that moment, the Holy Spirit will give you words that you're supposed to say. He's going to meet your need at that moment. Now, here's the problem. If the world hates Christians, if the world is offended by our message, if they're enslaved to sin, if they're blinded by Satan and they desperately need the Holy Spirit, and this whole evangelism thing is a spiritual warfare, there's an inherent danger that we as Christians face. So this leads us to truth number three, the inherent danger. Truth number three, hostile opposition from the world may cause you to stumble in your faithful witness to Christ. May cause you to stumble. Now, we've been out of John for the past three or four weeks, but let's just go back and read what we, what we talked about a few weeks ago. Go back up to chapter 15, verse 18. This is a flow of thought that Jesus has already started back up in verse 18. We looked at this about four weeks ago. What does Jesus say? If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Okay, what does Jesus say? 
hey, the world's going to hate you. The world's going to persecute you. There's going to be intense hostility. There's going to be opposition. When you go out and you share your faith, when you give your testimony, when you go out with the gospel, and the name calling starts to happen, and the marginalization starts to happen, and the claims of bigotry and narrow-mindedness and the opposition and the persecution, when all that starts to happen because you testify about me, what are you going to be in danger of doing, disciples? You may be in danger of stumbling. Now notice what Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 1. What does he tell them? I have said all these things to you. What are all these things he said? Well, everything he just said before that about being hated, about being persecuted. All these things I've said to you to keep you from falling away. The best translation of that word is really where we get the word scandalize. It's the Greek word skandalizo. Disciples, I don't want you to be scandalized by my message. I don't want you to be offended. I don't want you to be offended to testify about me. I don't want you to fall away or or be scandalized by being identified with me. I don't want you to be surprised when the attacks come. Now, there had already been false converts in the Gospel of John who got offended at Jesus. They stumbled. They were scandalized. Remember in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeds 5,000 people and they follow him over the Sea of Galilee and they come and they want him to do more miracles because, hey, we've got a guy that can give us free Happy Meals every day. We want this guy. He's given us free food. And Jesus says, now, time out. I am the bread of life. You've got to come to me. You've got to repent and believe. He basically lays down the gauntlet and says, I'm not here to meet your selfish needs. I am the bread of heaven. I'm the Lord and Savior. You must follow me. You must come to me. You must surrender to me. And let's pick up in that story and find out how they responded to that. So turn back to John chapter 6 for a moment because I want to show you where that same Greek word that's used in chapter 16, verse 1, scandalizo, don't be scandalized, don't be offended, shows up in John chapter 6. So, John chapter 6 is a really long chapter, but pick up in verse 58. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000. It's right after the bread of life discourse where Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You need to follow me. You need to come to me. You need to believe in me. All of these things about the exclusivity of Christ. And then let's pick up in verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, to them, do you take offense at this? Same Greek word. Are you scandalized by what I'm saying? Are you stumbling over what I'm saying? You're finding it hard. You're grumbling. You are taking offense at the gospel. Verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were his who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. 
And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by my father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus turned to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They stumbled. This whole group of people did not like the exclusivity of Christ, did not like the call to repentance, did not like the demands of Jesus as Lord. They were offended at what Jesus said to them, and so they grumbled, and they, the Bible says they turned around and left. They bailed on Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't go chase after him and say, no, let me lower the bar here. I didn't really mean that. Let me just kind of change up what, it's doing, what I'm doing here. No, Jesus turns to his disciples and say, okay, guys, here's your chance. Do you want to go away? Are you going to be offended? Are you going to stumble over me right now? And what does Peter say? We have nowhere else to go, Jesus. You are the one that has the words of eternal life. There's a strong temptation for us to do the same to get offended at the gospel. Stop and think about what we believe. When you stop and think about what we as Christians really believe and how the world perceives what we believe, and you know there's going to be opposition, and you know there's going to be persecution, and you know there's going to be name-calling, and you know there's going to be embarrassment, and you, you know all these things are happening, there could be a, a strong temptation for you and I ourselves to get offended at Jesus. Now, we would never out loud admit that, but we may actually think to ourselves, you know what, I'm not going to share this because I kind of believe it, but I don't want anybody else to know I believe it. I'm, I'm offended at this. I'm scandalized by this. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, listen, I'm telling you this right now, guys. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hated. And you need to be prepared for it because don't be scandalized. Don't be bothered. Don't fall away on account of my gospel. Because remember back when I fed the 5,000? Thousands bailed on me because they were offended. Now, Peter, back at the 5,000, when everybody bailed, what did Peter say? Jesus, we have nowhere else to go. We're going to follow you. Okay. What do we know about Peter? Did not he get offended at Jesus and deny him three times because he was scandalized by being associated with Jesus? As a matter of fact, Mark's gospel uses the same Greek word scandalizo that's used in John. Mark 14, 27-31, Jesus is predicting this to his disciples. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. The same Greek word. You will all be scandalized. You're all going to be offended. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. What happened to Peter? It was a temporary falling away. In that moment when that little girl said, aren't you, aren't you associated with Jesus? He cussed her out and said, no, I'm not. And he cussed. He was offended at the gospel. Now, thankfully, Peter's an example of God's 
sovereign keeping of one of his own through sovereign grace because we know that Peter was restored after that. John's first epistle, the, 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 gospel, or the, the letter of 1 John, tells about these people that were offended. 1 John 2, 19-21. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Can't go into a lot of detail here, but there was a group in that church that left. They went out. They bailed. They walked away. And John said the reason they walked away was because they were never part of us in the first place. This is not Christians losing their salvation. This is people that identified with Jesus but weren't truly saved. And then when the going got tough, they bailed. And then John pivots to the church and says, Now listen, you guys, you've been anointed by the Holy One. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the truth. You're not going to do this because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. So there's this temptation to want to be offended by the gospel. And Jesus gets very specific. Let's go back to John 16 for a moment. Jesus gets very specific with what's going to happen with these men. Two things he promises them in verse 2. Number one, they're going to excommunicate you from the synagogue. They're going to kick you out of the Jewish worship. You're going to be excommunicated, which was a big deal back in that culture. But number two, you're going to be martyred. You're going to be killed. Look at verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour's coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Now, that's ironic. Often throughout church history, the most persecution that has come against Christians have been from other so-called Christian groups. People that are zealous to worship God, thinking they're doing the right thing by putting to death Christians, are actually ironically going to be sinning, even though they're thinking that they're doing a service to God. Think about Paul before he was converted. Wasn't Paul a passionate persecutor of the church? Wasn't he a violent opponent? Acts 8.3, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. Paul thought he was doing God's bidding. I'm doing God's work. I'm a Pharisee. I'm going to go kill those Christians. Acts 26, 9 through 11. Paul, when he's given testimony, says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many of these things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was zealous. I'm doing this in the name of God. I'm doing this because it's God's will. And Jesus says, there's going to be people that are going to put you to death thinking that they're doing God's will. I had to think about that for a moment. There are those that subscribe to Islam who are putting to death Christians in the name of God, thinking they're doing a service to God. But what happened to Paul after his conversion? Well, what goes around comes around, Paul. 1 Corinthians 4, 4, 12-13, We labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 
So, Jesus is very clear. We must testify. You have no option. You've got to testify. The Holy Spirit's going to give you power to testify, but there's going to be a temptation to be offended by the testimony. So we need to be careful. But here's truth number four. Why does the world hate us so much? Here's truth number four. A hostile world will persecute you because they're in rebellion against God. Now, Jesus gives us the answer in verse three. They will do these things because, why Jesus? Because they have not known the Father nor me. Go back up to verse 21, chapter 15. All these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know. Now, is this just a matter of ignorance? They don't know who God is? Are they doing this out of ignorance or are they doing this out of rebellion? They're doing this out of rebellion. Remember this. If people are truly lost, if people are truly enslaved to Satan, if people are truly spiritually dead, they are hostile to God. They are rebellious against God. They not only not know God, but they lash out against us. Listen to how Paul describes this overwhelming sinfulness of people who don't know God. Romans 3, 10 through 18. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to chef blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That describes the people that you and I are coming up against, that we're sharing the gospel with. They hate God. They don't seek for God. They don't understand. They're liars. All these things. They don't fear God. Here's the thing. You can be mad about that, or you can be heartbroken and say they desperately need Jesus. These people need Jesus. They need to be saved. They need their eyes open to the truth. They need to have hearts that love God and need to know that God loves them. So I think we need a healthy dose of lostness to know what we're dealing with. I think you know this. But when you actually begin to start sharing your faith, you're getting in the battle. You're getting into the hostility. You're seeing that lostness on the front lines and you're seeing people who are POWs or prisoners of war of Satan and they need to be rescued and God's going to use your witness as the means to open their eyes, open their hearts. They desperately need Jesus and that's why you desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit to do only what the Holy Spirit can do. Here's truth number five. You must remember that there will always be hostile opposition to the truth about Christ. If you're waiting for this to go away, I've got sad news for you. It's not. I mean, Jesus told this over 2,000 years ago to his disciples. Do you think it's going to get any better? What does Jesus say to them in verse 4? I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I'm forewarning you, Jesus says. 
Listen, guys, I've repeated this over and over again to you. You're going to be hated. You're going to be persecuted. They're going to come against you. You need the Holy Spirit. You're dealing with lostness. It's a spiritual battle. You need to remember these things, and it's going to be a constant thing. Acts 14, 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Think about that. Many tribulations before you get to heaven. If you're looking for a clear, easy path to heaven, you signed up for the wrong thing. I hate to tell you that. When you signed up to become a Christian, as it were, you signed up for tribulation. You signed up for spiritual warfare. You signed up for opposition. As a matter of fact, listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. J.C. Ryle, he was the bishop of Liverpool back in the late 1800s. I I like to read um, his expository thoughts on the Gospels are are very devotional as well as as just really good stuff. And this is what he says. Forewarned, forearmed. You must not look for a smooth course and a peaceful journey. You must make up your minds that you're going to face battles, conflicts, wounds, opposition, persecution, and perhaps even death. That's what Jesus is saying. Make up your mind now, disciples. You've been forewarned. I've warned you in advance. This is going to happen. But praise Jesus. He hasn't just warned us, but he's armed us. And who has he armed us with? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the helper who lives inside of you. He's the spirit of truth who lives inside of you. He he empowers your witness. He gives you strength to be bold. He he overcomes all of those weaknesses. He's the ever-present source of help living inside of you to give you that boldness and that clarity. And so you and I must testify to Jesus. We have no option to sit on the sidelines. We have no option to be passive. We're on the front lines of engaging a lost world with the gospel that needs to know about Jesus Christ. And so we can be mad at it. We can throw up our hands and we can retreat and we can say, you know what? I don't like this culture. I don't like the opposition. I don't like the fact that America is not the way it was before. I don't like all this liberalism. I don't like all this stuff. I don't like it. Well, you can have some cheese with that wine. Or you can say, God... You've placed me here at such a time as this, in this community, at this time, at this place, for this purpose, and I more than ever need to open my mouth. And I more than ever need to share the gospel. Because we're on the side of truth. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the answers the world is looking for. We are God's instruments to proclaim the truth so that those that are dead in sin can come alive. Those that are rebellious against God can become worshipers of God. Those that have dead stony hearts can be replaced with hearts of flesh. Those that are spiritually lost can be spiritually saved. We are God's instruments to proclaim the truth so God can do only what God can do. So now more than ever, we need to be strong. We need to be bold. We need to be clear in our gospel witness. We cannot be silent. And we cannot retreat. And we can't let the next generation do it. The next generation will do it. No, God has called us here, now, at this time, at this place, to be bold in our witness, 
And so now more than ever, we need to testify faithfully to Jesus. But he's given us the power of the Holy Spirit, the very spirit of truth to live inside of us, to empower us, to tell the truth. So would you go out this week and tell the truth? Equipped and armed inside of you with the ever-present spirit of truth to give you the power to be bold and to be clear in your witness. Because here's the issue. A lost and dying world is going to hell. And they need the answer. They need the gospel. They need to hear the truth. And God has given us the truth to be shared. So don't hide your, don't hide your light under a basket, but let your light so shine that people would know the truth and the truth would set them free. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. of our world is so great and the opposition to truth is so heavy (coughs) sometimes it seems like we're waging a losing battle and instead of seeing lost people as enemies Instead of seeing them as those that are anti-God, would we see them as you see them, lost, blind, hopeless, helpless, enslaved? And with compassion and with truth, Father, would you give us extreme power through the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. Help us to testify to the truth about Christ. Lord, help us not to be offended. Uh, I think in in the days ahead, there's going to be a lot of pressure upon us to back away, to be silent to be offended by the gospel, to, be, to, 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 to stymie what we might say. Because we're afraid of the consequences. And Lord, I know those consequences may, may come, they may not come, but one thing that we cannot do is be silent. We must testify. So give us the power and thank you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're our helper. You're the spirit of truth that lives inside of us. You give us strength upon strength. You give us boldness. Would we rely upon you this week to share, to testify? Jesus, we love you. Help us to love a lost and dying world. And love them so much that we would share with them the only hope, and that is Jesus Christ. And it's in your name that we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.